Greetings, everyone. I want to take you back in time to a time far distant before the stones that make up this fireplace behind me were even formed by perhaps four billion years. These stones behind me that contain numerous fossils were probably the result of either the Noatian deluge or an earlier flood that had destroyed all life upon this earth, of which geology tells us there were literally dozens. There is no way to really tell how many times the earth was inundated, submerged beneath the waters of the sea, but if you'll turn to Genesis 1 and verse 1, you will see in the very first verse of the Bible that when the Spirit of God came to this earth thinking deeply, or as it says, brooding over this earth, all that was visible was inky black clouds, a chaotic, turbulent void, a water-covered earth, no life visible anywhere, not a single island, no land protruding above it. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Interestingly enough, they know in the commentaries that the Hebrew word is bara, which means brought into existence out of nothing. It does not mean or imply recreation, although as we shall see, the so-called creation hymn that really exists of about eleven separate documents, which may well have come to us through the great patriarchs of whom Noah was called the eighth, and it may have ridden safely through the waters of the flood on the ark. Some of what we read here in the second and third chapter may be more than merely oral tradition and may literally have been written down of Adam or some of the other patriarchs who lived from the time of Adam to the time of Noah. We will see, however, that there is one word that is very pivotal to our understanding in the first couple of verses of Genesis. In the beginning, then, God created the heaven and the earth. That's the entirety of the universe, billions of galaxies, each galaxy of which there are countless billions, having perhaps 200 billion billion stars. It's mind-boggling to even look at a world book encyclopedia, a rather high school level encyclopedia, without going to a bookstore and buying one of the most erudite or astute books you can find on the subject of astronomy and studying even a little bit about our solar system, let alone our own Milky Way, let alone the universe. It truly defies the imagination. It is mind-boggling. If you were to go to Pasadena and visit JPL, as I have done, and go to some of the space museums, and even inform yourself about the distance from the Earth of many of the Voyager satellites and the Russian space probes that were launched way back in the 70s, how far they are away from Earth today, and yet how close they are in terms of our own solar system that it would take you 55 years if you could travel, which you cannot, at the speed of light to get away from our planetary bodies to get to the very first star, which is the evening star that we first see in the evening as the sun goes down. So a little bit of information just from an encyclopedia on the subject of astronomy broadens your mind and expands your horizons. and lets you understand a little bit of the vastness of this universe that God has created. And the earth was without form, and it was void, meaning empty. So it was shapeless in the sense that there was no discernible shape. Why? We will see in a moment. 
and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now, it also means a broad depth, according to the Hebrew word. If you were to study the third article in the first volume of the Critical and Experimental Commentary by Jameson, Fawcett, and, Gr and Brown on the explanation of the mistranslation of the word was, you will have a very, very thorough and incisive and informative expose of what this should really mean. But let's just go to some internal evidence in Isaiah 45:18 and look at what the Bible says itself, even internally, to prove to us that this is, unfortunately, a mistranslation. The word should read became, as we shall see, because if you were to look into an exhaustive concordance, you would see that the words without form and void, or vain, empty, waste, or chaotic, are tohu, T-O-H-U, as we would transliterate it into English from the Hebrew, and bohu, B-O-H-U. But in Isaiah 45 and verse 18, God says, For thus says the Eternal that created the heavens, God Himself that formed the earth and made it, He has established it, He created it not tohu. The very same word is used in Isaiah 45:18 that is used in the second verse of the Bible. If it very definitely says that God created it originally beautifully and perfectly and did not create it in vain, empty, void, waste, tohu, the same Hebrew word, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the eternal and there is none else. Then when you see that the word itself is capable of that rendering, that it became empty, void, and waste, you realize there was an earlier creation. We'll turn quickly to a couple of scriptures I mentioned last week, to Ezekiel, the 28th chapter, and we'll just look at a couple of clues here which will tell us not only who the original prince was over what then was a principality but also what some of the conditions were that were extant here upon this earth at that time. Here Lucifer is spoken of as the type of the prince of the king of Tyre. Actually, it blends into a study of Lucifer in the middle of the twelfth verse of Ezekiel 28. Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You have been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, and many of them were listed, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emeralds, carbuncles, gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets, or your tabrets in your pipes, and that seems to imply in one sense of the word, even as if one of the demonic spirits who has manifested himself to men and perpetuated the myth of Pan, and I mentioned to you last time that is the origin of our word for bread and that anciently because the staff of life was wheat and it was worshipped as a sheaf of wheat or the staff or the stalk of grain with the ears of wheat on it, that in ancient mythology Pan, who was supposed to be the god of the wilderness, the woods, the forests, and the fields, and so on, was looked upon as the god who provided life. And so Pan is also shown, as you know, as half goat and half man, and he always had a pipe. But it was the pan pipe. It was the kind of a pipe that this one advertises on TV all the time. I forgot his name. It's something like it's not. It sounds like a wine. Zinfandel, like Zamfir, whatever his name is. And uh, he plays on a pipe that is fashioned of a lot of of little tubes that look like they were carved out of solid wood. And it's quite a beautiful instrument. Although I think I would get tired of it very very quickly. 
Now, this is another subject that I'm only touching on in passing, but I've always known the effect of music, the effect of certain rhythms. Is there any doubt in anyone's mind whatsoever that Satan, the devil, has used music, that he uses certain sounds, certain monotonous rhythms, certain discordant, discordant or unresolved dissonance, or even melodic music to do what? To set a mood. If I'm in a certain attitude and some beautiful music is played, I will cry. I cried last week. I stood back there and we sang that song about the Christian home, and I had been praying about some things and thinking about the beautiful day and about the beauty of home and family, and I was moved to tears. I've gone to concerts and sat there and just wiped the tears from my eyes. I've also listened to my driving along the road, kind of my mind on something else, and all of a sudden I'm irritated. I'm wondering, what is the cause of that? My wife and I will suddenly reach up and punch off the radio, and we'll both look at each other and say, Oh, what a relief! What in the world was that? We inadvertently kept the radio on. We're listening to a lot of nonsense, and it's just sawing. And you may as well be up on a blackboard and watch what happens to your spine, you know. Or when the teacher takes the chalk and goes, Squeak! And oh, you can't stand it. Well, I don't know. I've always wondered about this workmanship of his tabrets and pipes, or sockets and settings, and having to do with the fact that weird music has been associated with Satan the devil, and in mythology some of the pagan gods are associated with instruments of music. It is interesting to say the least. You were or are the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. You were upon the holy mountain of God. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created. So Satan was a created being along with Michael and along with all three of the archangels, actually, Gabriel and Lucifer. It's interesting to me that the cherubim that are around God's throne have four visages. Two of the archangels we know of seem to have appeared from time to time. They certainly spoke. The 11th chapter, for example, of the book of Daniel is one of the longest, the longest single prophecy in all the Bible, and it's first personal testimony from an archangel. It is a quotation from beginning to end from an archangel speaking to Daniel and is a prophecy. He says, I am Michael, your prince, the prince of Israel, gave that prophecy, and he had to go to fight with the kings of Persia. There are only three that we know of. Isn't it interesting that the ox, and this is clear from Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10, where Ezekiel says, and I saw this ox, and he said, I knew they were cherubim, and they have the faces of a man, an eagle, a lion, and an ox. Yet the main representation or the main characteristics down through history that we have seen seems always to have been that of an ox, a huge four-footed animal like a domesticated cow or an ox. One of the most populous nations, the second most populous nation on the face of the earth today, still worships cattle. Many other societies do. In some tribal societies in Africa, the cattle of the Maasai, for example, are a symbol of wealth. 
and they eat, the, they drink the milk, and they make a kind of a curd or a cottage cheese out of it. They even bleed the animals and take a little blood from the vein and mix it with the milk and eat that, but they rarely ever eat flesh except on very rare and special occasions, and some of them eat no flesh at all but are, in that sense, vegetarian. So they're eating the blood and drinking the milk. But in India, the Brahmin cattle are looked upon as gods. I've always wondered, because of the simple fact that the spirit world is billions of years older than our world, isn't it? God is billions of years older than these rocks. He caused the rocks to be formed. And Almighty God may well be billions of years older than the three archangels of whom we learn in the Bible, Lucifer, Michael, and Gabriel, because it tells us they were created. Were they created in just sort of our neck of the woods? We will never know that until the beginning of the kingdom of God. Were they created to have a certain effect upon that portion of God's great, vast, limitless creation that is in this part of the Milky Way and that has to do with a great, vast, fathomless program for all eternity beyond our remotest dreams out into the future. Next question. Is it true that those created beings looked like animals or birds or men? Ah, yes, of course. What does God look like? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews, the first chapter, he is the stamp impress of God the Father. God's arm is not shortened that it cannot help, it says. His eyes are upon the righteous or the wicked alike. He has hands, it says. It shows in the first chapter of the book of Revelation that Jesus stands and has feet, and he has legs, and loins, and chest, and arms, and hands, and a face, and hair. And it says that when he appeared to Abraham, as a man, that he looked exactly like any other traveling man, that originally there were three of them, and suddenly after that meal in the plain of Mamre, in the tent flap that day when Sarah and her servant hasted to make ready a quick little meal for these men, only two men, it said, went on to rescue Lot from Sodom, but they looked like men, and so did the third one, whom Abraham recognized was a member of the very divine family who had manifested himself as God. And when Jacob ran into this strange being, and they wrestled all night long, and the only way this strange being could prevail against the tenacious grip, the wrestling hold of Jacob, was to strike like a karate blow to the groin, so that it caused a piece of cartilage to break loose and to wither, and Jacob limped upon his leg from that day on, and this great being said, you are no longer going to be called Jacob. Because as a prince have you prevailed or overcome with God, Israel shall your name be from this point on. What did he appear like? A man. When did God first appear as a man? Look like a man, having eyes, a nose, ears, a mouth, a torso, legs, and hands. Why? Billions and billions of years ago. And when were the cherubim created? Not after Adam way before. Therefore, what are we saying? We are saying that here on this earth, walking out there in the fields, are physical models, prototypes, replicas, if you will, 
of creatures which exist in a spiritual dimension, the spirit world. Flying in the air from an Aerie high in the cliffs of Colorado, searching out prey below, is an eagle. And that eagle is the reflection of an earlier design. It's made to fly in this Earth's atmosphere, that's true. But what about that regal bearing and that non-blinking, golden-eyed stare and that very imperious, regal-looking, turned-down beak that can rip the flesh and those huge, powerful wings and talons? The eagle, which is obviously the most powerful and the most feared of all the winged creatures in this day and age. And the lion that we know of as the king of beasts that actually has no enemies except man. So God manifested himself like a man. Now you see where I'm leading? Is it possible that God allowed each one of the three archangels to be like an advisor, to lay before him a plan, to suggest to him a pattern? Is it possible that God, since he does listen to advice, you can look at the first chapter of Job, you can look at the case of a deception involving one of the kings of Israel who died by a chance arrow in a battle, when an angel said, I will be a lying spirit in the voice of the prophets. And God said, Thou hast well said, go ahead and do so. But God heard this one and that one. He rejected this idea, the other idea, but he said, that's a good idea. We'll do it that way. It's only conjecture. It has nothing to do with whether we can be saved or the salvation that is offered in and through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It has to do with the world way before Adam and perhaps with the kingdom way beyond this age in which we live today. It's only a question. Back in Isaiah, the 14th chapter, we learn just a little bit more. And again, I'm looking at this from a slightly different point of view for a different purpose than I did last week. How art thou fallen from heaven, verse 12 of Isaiah 14, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how are you cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? You have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds." Now when did this occur? We'll see that in just a moment. It occurred long before this creation that we call the Adamic creation, long before those rocks were formed from ooze and mud that had entrapped all kinds of little fossils and shells and gradually solidified as the water was leached out of it and became claystone or sandstone or shale long before. He said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. So that tells us there were clouds. He existed on an earth in which there were creatures. I firmly believe that Lucifer reigned over this earth at a time when there were great creatures which perhaps he had a hand in creating. I do not believe he is a creator. I do not believe he could have done so apart from the agency of God. But I have speculated, and it's merely speculation, as to whether Almighty God left this crown prince called Lucifer on this earth. And so many billions of years went by, and God came to visit the earth one day and looked and beheld all that Lucifer had done. And behold, it was not very good, but very bad. A, a Tyrannosaurus rex is not compatible with human beings. 
the hundreds upon hundreds of dinosaurs, which would stand much taller than the ceiling of this room, the hundreds of species in the hundreds of billions of life forms were not compatible with man. Now, the only other answer I've got is that God created them for a great purpose, that the age of dinosaurs did in fact occur, that they were buried suddenly and are found miles sometimes deep beneath our feet and are coming up every single minute in the form of oil and fossil fuels, natural gas, and of course the shale that has oil shale in it as well as coal, which is the fossil relics of great ages way beyond. Now, the geologic succession, which has Permian and Ordovician and Silurian and Devonian, the age of fishes, fishes and so on, which claims that one followed another in monotonous succession over a period of many, many billions of years in gradual change under natural selection is totally erroneous. Everything you see in the rocks indicates a sudden die-out, a sudden catastrophe. Not one, but perhaps dozens, and that's my very point. There was not just one time in history when one great species, meaning all the great lizards and dinosaurs, died out. The rocks portray the fact that there were many such occurrences, that life occurred and was obliterated, that life occurred and was obliterated. And you don't see the intermingling of certain types of life. Some you do in the very late so-called terrace or the ice ages of the Eocene, Oligocene, and Pleistocene, Miocene, and so on. The Pleistocene being most recent along with terrace. And when you go to the tar pits at La Brea and you look at the museum there in downtown Los Angeles, you can actually see some of the creatures that roamed the United States of America, gigantic rhinoceroses that were about five times as big as the ones we know of in Africa today, huge camels, three or four times as big as a normal camel, saber-toothed tigers that stood much taller than a horse and had great fangs on them, about nine or ten or eleven inches long, like a tusk of a walrus, uh, huge creatures roaming the plains of this United States right here in Texas. You can go right over here to Glen Rose, a few miles south of Duncanville, and see the stones where it will show you a three-toed bird-like dinosaur that was running along with the huge hind legs that made a deep imprint in the mud of that stream bed that made it harden into rock along with the bare footprints of a human being, indicating very strongly to me that between the time of Adam and Noah, certain of the dinosaurs still existed. I don't think all of them did, but I think certain of the smaller ones did. Interesting. So at the time that he said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, there was a beautiful earth here. It had a greenhouse kind of an effect. It was like subtropical or semi-tropical throughout the entirety of the earth because, again, geology proves that to us. In the Smithsonian, there is in a refrigerator a baby mastodon with greenery still in its mouth. And it came from the tundra way up in north eastern Russia. Until 1929, there was a brisk trade in ivory from people digging the tusks by the millions out of the creek beds and the valleys and beneath the tundra in that area of permafrost where they were still frozen and they could dig down and get them. And many of the pianos, the old uprights in the United States that were made in the 1800s and early 1900s have ivory keys that were made from the tusks of the mammoths and mastodons that roamed the plains in Irkutsk and in actually up in the farthest reaches of northern Russia. It's true. So that at that time, when the die-out of these great creatures, the great hairy-type elephants that were much bigger than the ones we know today, 
They died suddenly because all of a sudden the total climatic pattern of the earth changed. Where it had been warm and humid and the foliage that is very clear in the, fo in the uh, fossil beds and the coal and so on of the very farthest northern reaches of Alaska and even South America and so on prove that the type of plants and the pines and the palm trees that grew in those reaches that today are covered nearly all the year with snow were tropical in nature. And we see that that jibes with what we learn in the time of Adam from Adam until the time of Noah. Let's turn to the twelfth chapter of the book of Revelation. We'll go back to that time in history and see what the Bible says about it. This is a brief multi-billion year history of the plan and the purpose of God, and it goes way back to the time before the creation of this earth, when God himself envisions his church and the eventual creation of man, the creation of these great archangels, the birth of his own son by a miracle through a virgin to become a human being. And it shows the agency of Satan the devil active in this program, trying to thwart it, to destroy it from the very first part of this chapter. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. So it very quickly comes from the time of looking from the blackness of dim history down to the earth and creation to the time of Christ. There appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. Now, as we shall see very shortly, and as I cover in the booklet entitled, Satan's Greatest Deception. What it was that appeared to Adam and Eve in the garden was not a snake. It was called in the Hebrew nakash, N-A-C-H-A-S-H. -H. The word has nothing to do with visage or physiognomy or appearance. The word comes from a root, you can look it up, and it means to hiss, to whisper, to divine, to prognosticate. So it means to convey a secret or a whispering prognostication. That's a matter of character. That's talking about a quality of mind. It's not talking about a physiognomy. It's not talking about the appearance of the creature. Something that was called a prognosticating, divining, clever whisperer appeared to Eve and said, as God said, you can't eat of everything in a garden. It doesn't say that a serpent appeared. That is merely what the translators began to put in there because of all that they knew from other passages in the Bible that talk about exactly this, a dragon, a tail, a dragon standing before the woman, serpentine form, and what God said later on when he said to the what? Not the serpent, but the nakash. From now on you will crawl on your belly, and dust shall be your meat. But prior to that time he didn't crawl on his belly. He stood upright. Now even in mythology a dragon always appears as having great alligator-like fanged or clawed legs. He kind of stands upright. He's serpentine in form, but he has a big long body with perhaps wings, right? Sometimes the wings looking like 
they're bat's wings with skin instead of feathers. You've seen those characterizations in mythology. And he always has a hideous-looking head with, with uh, kind of like a combination of an alligator with a huge nostrils and a forked tongue, and he's breathing fire, and he's got little wicked-looking horns, and he's carrying a trident or something. And you've seen pictures of St. George and the dragon, and you've seen the old pictures in ancient encyclopedias of what a dragon is supposed to look like. Is that because anciently some creature like that actually presented itself to human being and human mythology has portrayed to us down through the ages what dragons are supposed to be or supposed to look like? There are none of them running around the earth today and there are no fossil dragons that are found except that we look at certain lizards like down in the Galapagos and elsewhere where we find monitor lizards which are ugly creatures but can move very, very rapidly and are quite large. Like we have a very large one that is poisonous in the southwestern deserts in northern Mexico called the Gila monster. And he's a kind of a beaded looking huge fat lizard and his bite is very, very poisonous. It says his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven because there were only three archangels. And each archangel apparently had such great influence that what he decided, his angels followed him in that decision and did cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born." That was reference to the slaying of all the children at the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. But we also will see as we go along a little later on that Satan the devil has been right there at every great and major part of the program and the plan of God. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was called up unto God into his throne. So there is the entire ministry of Christ, his death and his burial and his resurrection. And the woman fled into the wilderness, and this is the church throughout all of those Middle Ages and perhaps throughout all time to an extent, where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her there for a thousand two hundred and three score days or three and a half years or twelve hundred and sixty years extrapolation uh, into history. And there was war in heaven. Now, this is not the first war. There had already been war in heaven before the dragon was ever cast down to the earth, as it shows in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah, 20, Isaiah 14. There was war in heaven. We are right now, in terms of history, between verse 6 and verse 7 of Revelation, the 12th chapter. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. Don't ask me to explain how spirit beings fight. I don't know except that it's more mental, but it's spiritual. It has to do with force of will and power and in ways that we cannot know. I won't, again, uh, go into this because it would be hours before I would finish it. But if you simply take a look at the moon tonight with ten power binoculars, you see what? Emptiness. You see destruction. You see gigantic craters, sometimes more than 100 miles across. And if you look at moon rocks very carefully, which I have done even through a microscope, you will actually see that little tiny particles, because they are not impeded by an atmosphere, can travel at such incredible speed that you can pick up a little tiny marble-sized polished ball that hit the, earth, hit the moon from some source in outer space where it was just debris. And in it, if you look very closely, will be the most perfect little crater you have ever seen. And it will actually have little ridges around it and will be a perfect tiny microcosm of a gigantic crater on the earth. If you can imagine a grain of sand traveling at such speed where there is no atmosphere that it crashes into a tiny pebble and creates a perfect eruption like a crater. I've seen them with my own eyes. 
Outer space is filled with junk and debris. It is filled with lifeless planets covered with poisonous gas. Look at the Venusian atmosphere. Look at the pictures coming back from Voyager, National Geographic, at our own planets, in our own solar system. Look at the great supernovas that blow up and apparently disintegrate. Look at the moon, lifeless. Look at some of the moons of the other planets that are misshapen and lifeless with no life upon them. And what did God see when he came to this earth, Genesis 1-1? Lifelessness, utter destruction, chaos, emptiness, and blackness and darkness and no light penetrating to the surface of this earth. Jesus said in Luke 10:17, I saw Satan as lightning fall to earth. Interesting. He told the Jews before Abraham was, I am. He was the very member of the Godhead who has, was there, who was there from the very, very beginning. He said, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. I won't read the rest of the twelfth chapter where it talks about Satan the devil coming down having great wrath, but let's go back to the first chapter of the book of Genesis right quickly. It says, Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. When that first cataclysmic battle occurred, all of the universe was wrecked and destroyed. It remained that way. Scientists tell us, and I am suspicious of their methods of measurement, I know what some of the errors are, for example, in radiocarbon dating, because the rate of intake of carbon-12 in the living foliage and trees and so on has not been constant. Mississippian, for example, and other coal strata prior to that time are totally devoid of radioactivity. They are non-radioactive, therefore absolutely demonstrating that much of that plant uh, material, which probably takes about 18 or 20 or 30 feet thick of floating vegetable material to be crushed down under rocks to make about one foot thick of anthrac anthracite or coal. and if it has no radioactivity that is discoverable today, then it means the rate of intake was not constant, but varied very wildly. And I think that is in connection with what happened during the change in the lifespan of man, the change in the nature of animals, where predators are now predatory creatures like lions, where they actually are going to revert back to their earlier stage. It says in the 11th chapter of Isaiah that the lion is going to eat straw like the ox and is going to once again eat vegetation instead of kill meat, kill animals and eat them. Men lived for great periods of time, upwards of 900 and some years, nearly a thousand years prior to that time. So says the Word of God. Why? Could it be that prior to that time there was more like a thicker layer of cloud cover and where it was almost like the daily cycle you have over in Honolulu. You've got the windward and the leeward part of the island, and you've got the sea breeze, and the vegetation on the land creates humidity, so you have the forming of the clouds up the Palinui every single day, and every afternoon it rains. And that's where all our water supply comes from, on the Hawaiian Islands. Not only from the earth beneath, the water was put there from evaporation out of the ocean, clouds over the mountains, rains, the rocks that are volcanic are very, very porous. It fills groundwater reservoirs in an aquifer, and they pump it back up, or else it fills reservoirs that are gathered from the rain. And so there is fresh water out in the middle of these volcanic peaks surrounded by thousands of miles of ocean. 
And that's where the water comes from on a daily basis. It'll rain every day in the summer in Honolulu. Every afternoon you can depend upon some rain showers. Go over there and it's just delightful. Beautiful morning, cloudy afternoon, wind, thunderstorms, rain, showers, pleasant evening, sparkling night, early morning. Once in a while a front will come through, but that's rare. Day after day it just kind of percolates with its own weather. And it says very clearly, and I won't go back and read all of that, that God caused a mist to go up from the ground and watered the surface of this earth when man was put in the Garden of Eden. Skipping ahead to the third chapter, the Nakash, and I'm going to read it that way because serpent is an unfortunate mistranslation. The whispering prognosticator would be better. The subtle whispering diviner would be better was more subtle than any other creature of the field which the eternal God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now I want you to notice this attitude of mind. First of all, he plants a thought. Now I just said those words to you, and you heard those words. But I could say New York City, Tokyo, Japan. I could say baseball, sunshine. Bluebird. I could say all kinds of completely disconnected words, and your mind instantly creates a thought picture, and you're following what I say. I say New York, and you think of something, maybe the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty. You know, I think of baseball, you think of your favorite team. The mind is very impressionable. It is exactly like soft clay. And if I'm standing over a piece of very, very soft clay, and I just drop a marble into it, it makes a big pit. And it just looks like it had exploded, and it has little bits around it, and it'll sit there just like dropping a golf ball in the mud. It's an impression. Now, when Adam and Eve were created, I like to think of the analogy of the computer. I got a personal computer in there, and you have this disk, and it's actually impregnated with a certain kind of material. It's a ceramic disk, but it is electronically able to receive signals which scramble little portions of metal magnetically, which cause it to remember the way certain little dots are scrambled around so that they will emerge in word processing system as a letter in the English language, but it's really only processing a series of little dots. It's all it's doing. But when I first get it and it's brand new, it's empty. You can interrogate it and there is nothing in there. But I can begin to put, you know, files in there and type things into it and certain programs, and then it is in there. And it's indelibly in there, just like dropping a marble into the clay. When a little child is born, their minds are utterly empty. That's why the first five years are so infinitely important to give them the kind of discipline as well as education and love and forgiveness and training that they must have. Because if you don't get them the first five years, there's so much it becomes hardened just like finally these fossils were no longer oozing around in jelly-like mud, but they became hardened into rock. And just like you program that commu computer or you drop the marble in the clay, it becomes hardened and there is the fossil relic of a little pit where you drop the marble. Now Satan was dealing with two human beings who were basically neutral toward God. They were not yet hostile. There was no hostility, no, no remote indication of it. They're cheerfully talking back and forth with God. Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And the Bible shows us that they were walking about stark staring naked, right? In the world's biggest bedroom. There was not a human being in sight for thousands of years 
or in, in miles rather, in all directions. They were naked, and they didn't pay any attention to the fact that they were naked. You ever had a little kid get up and his mother turn around and be busy on something, and all of a sudden the kid's halfway down the street wearing nothing but his birthday suit? It's happened. Little tiny kids are standing there cheerfully unaware of the fact, when they just begin to walk, that they are naked. They're not ashamed. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Notice what happened here. Has God said, you cannot eat of every tree of the garden? He subtly puts a thought, God is not fair. Has God deprived you of anything to eat? Does God want you to starve? Has God said, here you are in the middle of all this food, but you can't eat of it? You can just go hungry. The woman thought, I've got to explain. So Eve said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, sir, you know, the salesman, innocently enough. I'll explain it to this guy. He needs to have this explanation. And what did he look like? He may have looked like a great, upright, maybe even beautiful kind of a creature with a, a serpentine-looking body with perhaps a face that looked like an ox or a lion or an eagle. I don't know. I have no idea. The Hebrew word does not convey physiognomy. It merely conveys character. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. So he is saying, God knows better than this. He is saying, God is withholding vital knowledge from you. He is saying, God has lied to you. That's not right. I will tell you the truth. So here is the first recorded lie in all of history. And as John 8.44 says in the words of Jesus Christ, You are of your father the devil, who is the father of liars. So he shows that the original lie came with Satan the devil. Satan originated the lie. Is this also a shadowy beginning of the concept of the immortality of the soul, which is a lie? That you are not really you, but an immortal soul that lives on after the body dies. You shall not surely die, for God does know. Now he's really getting tough. He's saying God knows something that he did not convey to you, that God knows more than he has told you, that in the day you eat thereof your eyes shall be opened. He is saying your eyes are presently closed. There is knowledge being denied you. There's much you don't know. Now, if you tell someone, I've got a secret. There was a television show by that one day, one time years ago. I've got a secret. The secret profession of these people, and you tried to guess what it was. Kids are really excited about secrets. Like the drunk who was sitting at the bar that time and was said to be peeking into his hand, finding the drunk next to him couldn't stand it. And he said, what, what do you got in there? And he, he looked again and he said, uh, guess. And the drunk said, I, I don't know. He said, an elephant maybe? The guy looked again and he said, what color? You know, so ridiculous, but people are supposed to see pink elephants, you know, when they get drunk. That's an old, old story. But people are curious. People will stampede to an area to see something. You ever get in a traffic jam on a freeway when the wreck was cleared away an hour ago, but the car is still there, and they all slow down, and they rubberneck, as they say they are gawkers and people who like to look, and I want to see what happened there. They're curious. And so he appealed to Eve's curiosity. Your eyes shall be opened. You will get the innermost knowledge, the straight scoop. You'll get the really straight dope here. And then you will be like God is. You'll be as gods. You'll know a great deal more than you do now. You'll know good and evil. 
So the woman thought, that, that, that thought was programmed now into her brain. It was forming a crater in the clay. It was actually being stamped right into the brain. It was there. And the thought also kind of responded to a tone that was waiting to be struck. And that tone is a carnal human physical tendency to believe God is unfair. Satan the devil believes right down to the marrow of his spirit that God is unfair, that God is unjust, that God is harsh and unkind and unforgiving. He has a perverted concept of God, and he will try to put into our minds the idea that God is not fair, God is not just, God is picking on you, God is singling you out for special treatment. Now look back through history at what Jesus said to the people who unfortunately were killed in a mass accident, a mass, uh, not murder, but an accident when a whole bunch of them were killed when a parapet came down on them at the Tower of Siloam, or the people who were killed in a mass murder. And when he said, you suppose that these people were sinners above all that live in Jerusalem, I tell you, no, that wasn't it. But many people think that is it. And to this day, people will actually try to deal with it by forgiving God. They will be very righteous. An accident occurs, an airplane crashes, and somebody will say, The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. They're blaming God for the accident. They're saying God caused that plane to go down. It was God's time to take those people when God had nothing to do with it. God is out there. He, we have turned our back on Him. He says our sins have separated between us and Him. And the very first moment you see these people running and hiding from God. The voice of God comes, as we'll see in the garden, and they hide. God wasn't hiding. He was out there. Adam, where are you? Adam and Eve were hiding at the foot of Sinai. When the thunder and the lightning was there, and the flash of the lightning, and the huge voice that was thundering, the people drew way back and said, Moses, you speak to us, but let not God speak to us anymore, lest we die. And they ran and hid themselves. Yet people will ask, why does God hide himself? God says, thou art verily an eternal or a God that hideth himself. Why? Because man first hid himself from God. Man doesn't want to see God. We think we do. But by and large, the average man doesn't want God interfering with his daily way of living. So the woman saw the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave to her husband, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So all of a sudden, shame came in, guilt, because guilt triggers shame. They were guilty, and they knew it. Remember your childhood. Did you ever steal ever once in your childhood? Did you ever cheat in a test when you're in the fifth grade or tenth grade or eleventh grade? Did you ever lie to your mom? I played with fire one time with some matches, and my mom had no right to know that I did. There was no way she could have known. So I denied it, and she spanked the way out of me, not because I'd played with fire, but because I'd lied to her. But you know how horrible you feel? I mean, I'd got caught doing things, and she'd say, I'm going to tell your father, and when he gets home, he is going to take the hide right off you-know-what. And all the rest of that day, I felt like I needed a bath. I felt dirty. I felt befouled. I felt guilty. I was apprehensive. I was also angry. I was mad. I was resentful. Think about it. Guilt triggers resentment toward the punishment. Guilt triggers anger. 
guilt triggers self-justification, but it also triggers a feeling of shame and unsettledness, of, of unease, and it, it just makes you feel kind of dirty. So here they were, perfectly clean and wholesome and neutral toward God, in marital bliss in the world's most gorgeous setting, neither one of them wearing a stitch and both of them thinking that the other one was beautiful. It was nothing ugly. They hadn't yet gotten around to telling these people that what are boys made of? Boys are made of you know, snails and puppy dogs' tails or however it goes, and girls are made of sugar and spice and everything that's nice. They hadn't gotten to that point yet. The mythology had not yet been produced. And the eyes of them both were opened. But they'd already been opened. They weren't walking around with their eyes mere slits. They weren't walking around looking through cataracts or something. They were open, but now it was just that they saw things in a different light. Now, to me, a lily is a beautiful flower, but to the pagans it was a symbol of something evil. You know, you can see something that is beautiful. There's nothing wrong with a pentagram. There's nothing wrong with taking my hands and doing that and saying hook em horns to portray the symbol of the uh, football team of University of Texas down at Austin. But to some people they think that's a symbol of Satan the devil. There's nothing wrong with a triangle. But some people say that's a Satanism symbol. There's nothing wrong with drawing a human eye. And some people say that's a symbol of Satanism. It is only in the eye of the beholder of what you think it means. And you can pervert and twist something which is actually quite clean and quite pure. The eyes of them both were open. They came to look upon another, each other in a different way. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the eternal God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the eternal God amongst the trees of the garden. Now where they had been friendly and open and just like a little child and would have instantly walked over to see him, would have loved his presence, would have loved to look right into his eye, realized he was the source of all wisdom and all knowledge, that he was the source of all life. He had given them the wonderful garden. He had given them each other that they were actually his progeny and his creation. They warmed up to him. They loved him. They respected him. They had no reason to be guilty or to feel dirty or like something was ugly or bad. Now they were hiding. Not only were they hiding, but they hidden themselves from each other. And he said, I heard, where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman. Now, you know the story. He couldn't say, Yes, Lord, I did, and I'm sorry. There was no way. So he wasn't what? He wasn't repentant. This is not repentance. This is dodging the issue. This is shifting the blame. And who is to blame? Oh, well, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me. Who is really to blame? And where did that thought come from? That thought came from the devil. Let me tell you something, brethren. I know a lady, I haven't seen her now for over 20 years, who was married to one of our leading men. She lived up in Seattle, Washington. She lost a child. She had waited for years and years to have this child, and they had prayed and prayed because she thought that she was barren. And finally she had a pregnancy, and the baby came full term, and she lost the baby. 
and she blamed God. And she went out of her mind and became totally demon-possessed, more than one personality, and ended up in an institution. It happened. She felt picked on. She felt, why did God let this happen? And she couldn't handle it, and she began blaming God. In other words, what did she do? She opened up a channel of her brain to direct communication from a demon, from Satan the devil himself, and a demon moved in. I want to tell you something. Your emotions and your attitudes toward each other, toward husband and wife, child to parent, brother to sister, member to member, and members' attitudes toward the ministry or toward God are extremely critical because any time you allow this age-old handicap of human nature that goes like this, familiarity breeds contempt, to get a hold of you, and you begin to become angry and you flare up with hatred and rancor and anger, and you begin to place blame, and you begin to say somebody else is evil, and so on. You're actually opening up a portion of your mind to a hideously bad and an evil influence. What took place for all those four and a half billion years of time prior to the emergence of the earth and the creation of a beautiful garden and Adam and Eve being put in it? Well, it was nothing. And where were all the spirits that followed Satan? I will show you right quickly. They were here on this earth. I want you to turn to a couple of quick scriptures, and I wish I had more time, and I may have to continue this because a couple of these things are fascinating, but I won't take further time except to refer to a couple of them in passing today. Over in 2 Peter 2, 1 to 5, let's go to that first. 2 Peter 2, 1 to 5. And I won't read all those verses, but just get right to verse 4. If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell. Now that word hell, you can just take my word for it or look it up, is Tartaru, T-A-R-T-A-R-T-A-R-O-O, or Tartaru, Tartarus. It is only in one place in the Bible, and it is translated hell, and it should not be translated that way because it should be condition or position of restraint or in prison is a better rendering. Cast them down to imprisonment, to confinement, to a condition of restraint, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, and so on. And he's merely giving a, a statement here, if God did not spare angels, then certainly he's not going to spare us if we sin, and so on, and so on. Take another look now at First Peter the third chapter and verse 18. Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now I'll go through this quickly, and we can do it in greater length at some time if I'm puzzling you, but let's just diagram the English sentence right quickly so we can look at it. The Spirit is the agency by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. We just read who these were. First we read in Revelation, the 12th chapter, that the dragon's tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven. Revelation 1.20 shows the stars in the right hand of the person who appeared to be Christ are angels or the stars which are the spirits of the churches. 
angels and stars are used interchangeably in the Bible. That's why I believe the star that appeared to the wise man was in fact an angel and not some star in an astrological sense, but actually an angel that came and stood over the place where Christ was born. The spirits in prison are the demons who followed Satan, his former angels, who were chained by the word and the power of God to the blackness of this earth with nothing but heaving waves, and think about this for a minute, for perhaps four and one-half billion years prior to the creation of man. Mental suffering is the worst kind. Think about it. Now, which spirits, which sometime were disobedient? Verse 20. When did Christ go and preach to them? When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah? You've got to look at the original Greek. You've got to put this together with many other scriptures to see exactly what this is telling you. And I won't go into the Catholic doctrine, but you do know that this has something to do with purgatory and the idea that Christ was not really dead. That is the weirdest, most twisted doctrine you've ever heard. In other words, the Savior didn't really die on the stake, but for three days and three nights, except they say it isn't three days and three nights, they even argue about that, he went to hell, so says the Catholic Church, and tormented a lot of souls of human beings who were in hell. That's what they think this scripture means, and it means nothing of the kind, as we very clearly see. Christ did what? When the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water, Christ witnessed to demonic spirits of what was going to happen. Now why? Get the picture? From the earliest creation, way before these rocks were formed, Satan the devil rebelled and was cast to this earth, and in a fit of hideous anger destroyed it. The earth was lifeless. It was empty of all life. And the continents, perhaps God did that to just frustrate the devil and to punish those demons submerged beneath the sea. And for perhaps billions of years, all they could do is wander. They were commanded under the force of Almighty God that they could not ascend above the clouds. And the clouds covered the earth with inky blackness. There was no light. They couldn't see anything. Beneath them was nothing but tidal toss, because you don't suspend the moon's action, huge waves roaring, foaming, cresting, and subsiding. For billions of years, all they saw was water. I've always wondered why this scripture in the 12th chapter of the book of Matthew, strange statement, but I think I understand now. Matthew, the twelfth chapter, Jesus went to a place called the tomb of the Gerasenes, but on another occasion he talked about these evil spirits who would actually inhabit the mind of a man or a woman. He said in verse 43, When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walks through dry places. Interesting why spirits walk through dry places, seeming to say they avoid wet places. I don't know. Seeking rest, and findeth none, and he says, I will return unto my house from whence I came out, and when he has come he finds it empty, swept, and 
all cleaned up and ready for habitation, and he goes and takes seven other spirits worse than himself and possesses this person, and the last state has become worse than the first, Christ said. That is fascinating that Jesus would say they wander about in dry places. Now, do you notice in the eighth chapter of the book of Matthew, when he came to the place called Gerasene, so this one spirit came up and began to argue with Jesus Christ, he said, Are you come to torment me before the time? I won't turn back to that and read it. And on two different occasions in the Gospel accounts, it says that a spirit said to Jesus Christ, Are you come to torment us before the time? It says in 1 Corinthians 6 that the saints shall judge angels, remember, and that these spirits who followed Satan the devil are literally, by their teeming millions, everywhere about that Satan, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. He's called in Revelation 12.10, the accuser of the brethren. That is verse 29 of Matthew 8, if you want that scripture on how he met these people of the Gergesenes who said, Are you come to torment us before the time? Now think about history for a moment. Satan was there from the very beginning of an earlier beautiful creation, tried to overthrow God, was cast down to the earth, and the original Star Wars occurred, and the universe was wrecked, and the earth was destroyed, and for perhaps billions of years Satan and his demons had to wander around the blackened, inky, dark surface of this earth with only water covering everything and not a dry speck of land in sight. Creation Week comes along, and the very first person on the scene talking to the weakest member, I'm sorry, ladies, that's what God's Word said, of that earlier family is Satan the devil with his subtleties who appeared not as a snake wrapped around a tree, but as some great, glittering, exalted-looking creature that was probably one of the most impressive things she'd ever seen. But he hissed, and he whispered, and he muttered, and he confided in her and said he'd give her a secret and tell her things that she really uh, ought to know that God was holding back. And she listened, and the thought got into her mind down through history. One of the most righteous men at his time who may have been the builder of the Great Pyramid. Chop is how they pronounce it. We say Cheops. No, it was Chop. But you know, in some of the Eastern European languages, J-O-B is pronounced Chop or Chop. And I do believe that Job, because of what he says in the book and what is said of him, and how Eliab and the others said, Where were you when God laid the foundations of this universe and of the earth? And that part of his vanity had to do with the fact that he may well have been the builder of the Great Pyramid. Satan attacked Job, Chop, personally, destroyed his entire family, and finally, even Satan, not being able to see that Job's great sin was self-righteousness, totally frustrated in his attempt to break Job, Job had to come to see himself when God did what? God showed him the universe, the great creatures of the sea, of the land, of the rocks, the eagles in the air, the little conies in the rocks. Let him see the miracle of the snow and the water. Read the last three chapters prior to the repentance of Job and the closing chapters of that mysterious and fascinating book called Job. And Satan the devil was right there. What do we read in Matthew, the, in, I'm sorry, the twelfth chapter of Revelation? That the dragon stood before the woman to devour the man-child as soon as he was born. Satan the devil influenced Herod. And one of the greatest massacres in the history of mankind with the exception, perhaps, of Hitler's Germany and Stalin's pogroms, took place when all of those little babies, two years of age and younger, 
were grabbed away from their mother's breast and taken out and slain. And Satan the devil did that and rejoiced over it. And what happened at the very instant Christ was baptized? Satan the devil, physically, if you can say, manifesting himself personally, actually conveyed Christ, because he's called the prince of the power of the air, to the top of perhaps Mount Harriman, we think, and showed him all the landscape and said, All this is mine. And if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give it to you. And Jesus didn't say it's not yours to give, but he just refuted him with the word of God. And what happened when Christ was about at the end of the ministry? He entered personally into Judas and brought about Christ's death. It's interesting to me as I look at the last chapters of Revelation, at the time when that great spirit who was called the accuser of the brethren is going to be cast into a symbolic bottomless pit and bound there for a thousand years. And later on, Jude says, they will be like wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Then as I look at the emotion of people who are in a rage and what Jude says of these demonic spirits, raging waves foaming out their shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Yet Jesus, in the midst of the storm, walks upon the waters and holds up his hand and said, Peace, or Shalom, be still. And David, who prayed in his beautiful psalm, He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. And God who brings peace, and not the storm or the tidal wave that we refer to when we talk of rushing waters as raging, or torpid, or turgid, or violent, or tortured, or powerful, or in some way racing, or in any way that we would describe something which makes us anxious or fills us with tension. And God, on the other hand, talks about peace and the still waters. Satan the devil hates this church. He hates me. He hates you. He hates my children. He hates your children. He hates mankind. He betrayed Judas and clapped his hands and giggled in glee when he saw the man hang himself, bawling and blubbering out his self-revulsion over what he had done when Satan's demonic influence left his mind and the man was there just like a drug aftermath with his own self-hatred and nowhere to turn and went and hung himself and committed suicide. And what do you suppose is the reason that these youngsters go to these rock concerts and go home and hang themselves or pick up a gun and blow their brains out with self-hatred? We do not take seriously enough the fact, as the Apostle Paul and Peter both said, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished of your brethren. My final question to you is this. Since the Bible says so much about Satan the devil and his demons, and the Bible says so much about we are not ignorant of Satan's devices, or, quote, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, or how easily he takes those people and snares them in their own sins, or how resist Satan the devil and he will flee from you. When was the first time or the last time that you were ever actually conscious of the fact that you were resisting Satan the devil? A lot of times you can say, 
Well, never, really. Ah, but you were wrong. You were wrong. Because he is all around. His influence is in the music, in art, in literature, in history, in science, in government and business, in finance and industry, in medicine. It is in the minds and hearts of millions of human beings. It sometimes, if we open up our minds to it, gets inside of us. Whom resist, it says, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished of your brethren that are in the world. If this church cannot understand that we will grow by leaps and bounds faster and larger, that we will get closer to God and see greater miracles occur, that there will be healings that we will not be able to contain for joy of almost disbelief, if we will draw closer and closer to God, clearly identify our enemy, the accuser of the brethren, learn to control our emotions with the power of God's Holy Spirit, put hatred and rancor out of our hearts, and be still and be placid. Be like a still pond, not a raging sea. And I'll leave that thought with you today. <laughs>